And if you got a brochure on your way in there, you'll see that tonight we're going to take a little look for the next little while here at the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to be looking at a sermon I've entitled, Man of Sorrows. Man of Sorrows. So if you're taking notes tonight, we're, we're at Man of Sorrows, Mark chapter 14. We'll be in verses 32 through 42. Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 42. You've heard this read already tonight from Matthew, but we're going to be looking at uh, one of the other Gospels tonight and kind of unpack that account a little bit more of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And here's where we look at him as being entitled, again, the Man of Sorrows. Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 42. Here, Mark writes this, and they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and they began to be greatly, uh, and, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. Father, we bow our heads again and just come to you in prayer as we've considered Man of Sorrows, and the song we sang earlier, as we consider the wonderful cross, as we consider this very night, some 2,000 years ago, we pray that you would help us to be sober tonight by the fact that Jesus offered his life. I pray that we'd be sobered tonight by the fact that it cost Jesus a lot of pain and a lot of anguish. I pray that we would see him not only as the, the Son of God, but as the Son of Man who fretted over the fact that he would be crucified and separated from his father. So tonight, God, as we consider what you would want us to learn from this text, as we listen and as we apply, we pray for your spirit to move in our midst today, God, and help us to really consider these things fresh and anew. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as you read a text like this, it's really hard to gather all that's really in what's going on in just these few verses. And I think Spurgeon captures the heart of it a little bit in a sermon entitled, The Man, Christ Jesus, which he preached on April the 12th, 1885. Here's what Charles Spurgeon had to say about really thinking and considering a text like this. He said this, quote, It will not be enough for you to hear or to read about Christ. You must do your own thinking and consider your Lord for yourselves. The wine is not made by gathering the clusters, but by treading the grapes in the wine vat. Under pressure, the red juice leaps forth. Not the truth 
as you read it, but the truth as you meditate on it will be a blessing to you. And Spurgeon says, shut yourself up with Jesus if you would know him. And just before that, he said, yet I am never more vexed with myself than when I have done my very best to extol his dear name. But what is it that I can compare it to except holding a candle to the sun? In other words, Spurgeon is saying, it's one thing to read about the text of Jesus giving his life for you and me, but it's another thing to experience it. It's another thing to really meditate and think about how the grapes are squashed for the red juice to come out to make the wine. And so many times as Christians, we're eager to drink the wine of the Word of God, but sometimes we don't spend the time of just meditating on the sheer horror of the fact that Jesus was squeezed and his blood was expounded for sinners like you and like me. Even when you try your very best to study and to meditate on the Lord Jesus Christ, it becomes clear that the mystery is too far and too deep for human comprehension. We know and believe that Jesus is fully God and that he is fully man, but to state and to even sincerely believe such a paradox does not mean that we fully understand it. True understanding even goes beyond believing. It is far too profound even for Christian minds enlightened by the Holy Spirit to totally comprehend this truth. With humility and with awe and with reverence, we follow the Lord tonight to this garden of Gethsemane where we see him struggle in a way that should make us sober and yet at the same time give us a steely resolve to follow his example and to be in awe of his incomparable strength. By now, it is probably near midnight on Thursday of the Passover week, the last week of Christ's life on earth. And Jesus' three years of ministry have finally come to a completion. He had already preached his last public sermon. He had already uh, performed his last public miracle. He had already celebrated his last Passover alive with his disciples. But infinitely more important than that, he had come to be the last ultimate Passover lamb, the perfect and only sacrifice for the sins of those who would repent and believe in him. And as we look further into our Lord's last night before his death, we grasp what we can of the sacredness of this powerful moment in his life and in his ministry. And we realize that no amount of study or insight can give more than a glimpse of the divine human agony that he experienced here in the Garden of Gethsemane. In fact, one of Philip Bliss's beautiful hymns contains the words, Man of sorrows, what a name, for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim, hallelujah, what a Savior. And the hymn writer borrowed his description of Christ from the prophet Isaiah, who predicted that the Messiah would be, in Isaiah 53, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but when the Bible describes, again, the personality of Jesus, it describes him, again, as a man of sorrows. There's no record in Scripture of Jesus laughing. There's no record in Scripture of Jesus joking around. But there, is, there are numerous accounts of his grieving, of his sadness, 
and even of his weeping. He weeped when his friend Lazarus had died. He wept over Jerusalem right before the triumphal entry. He wept here in the Garden of Gethsemane when he sweat drops of blood. And Hebrews 5, 7 says that he cried out with loud cries and tears. And so what we're seeing about Jesus here on Good Friday is that Jesus knew sorrow upon sorrow, grief upon grief, as no other man who has ever lived. But the sorrow he experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane on the last night before the crucifixion seemed to be an accumulation of all the sorrow that he had ever known, which would accelerate to a climax on the following day. We cannot comprehend the depth of Jesus' agony because as sinless and holy God incarnate, he was able to perceive the horror of sin that we cannot. Therefore, even to attempt to understand the suffering of Jesus on that night on the Mount of Olives is to tread upon holy ground. The mystery is too profound for human beings to comprehend, and even for angels. We can only stand in awe of the God-man. And like every other aspect and detail of Jesus' life and ministry, his agony in the garden was part of the foreordained divine plan of redemption. It was part of Jesus' preparation for the cross, where he would breathe his last to purchase us by his blood. Ever and always, the teacher, Jesus, used this struggle with the enemy in the garden the night before the cross to teach his disciples and to teach you and me another lesson in godliness, a lesson about facing temptation and facing severe trials. The Lord was not only preparing himself for the cross, but also by his example, preparing us as his followers for the crosses that he caused us to bear in his name. And so tonight, what we're going to do is just simply look at this struggle of Christ. And we're going to see that in the backdrop of the sleepiness of the disciples. Only one of these two groups would come out victorious. Only one would rise to the challenge. Only one is worthy of our worship, obviously the Lord Jesus Christ. And so though it's not always easy, it is always possible to come through the trial if we keep our eyes on Jesus. And so tonight, it's just going to be a short outline. I know there's a lot of material there maybe uh, to fill in, but we're just going to kind of go through this quickly. But basically, there's four headings to help us identify with Christ's struggle so that we may learn to rest in his strength. If you've got the, the outline there in front of you, four headings again uh, to help us identify with Christ's struggle so that we may rest in his strength. Here's the first heading I want you to look at tonight. Number one, the sorrow of Jesus's soul. The sorrow of his soul. And the first blank, if you are taking notes and want to fill that in, feel free. If not, you can just follow along. But the first sub point here is the squeeze of Gethsemane. The squeeze of Gethsemane. They're in verse 32, and they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. Now, again, this was after the last Passover meal that he just had with his disciples. Judas had just left to go get the Pharisees to come and abduct him in the garden at night. He knew Jesus was probably going to go pray, as was his custom, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, the Garden of Gethsemane is just across the Kidron Valley, a little bit uh, away from the city of Jerusalem, just a, a half a mile's walk. And there in the Garden of Gethsemane are these olive trees. Uh, in fact, Gethsemane, uh, the name literally means olive press. 
And if you were able to go with, to Israel with some of us a few years back, we spent a little time in the Garden of Gethsemane where they have these old olive trees where some botanists think that some of those trees are, are as old as 2,000 years old. And so it's kind, of, uh, it's kind of an interesting experience that you're walking around in the garden where these old olive trees are and you're thinking, you know, some of these trees could have been saplings or they could have already been somewhat mature trees at the time of Christ. And, and, and the reason that I, I talk about the squeeze of Gethsemane is because literally, again, Gethsemane means olive press. And the way that you make olive oil in, in that day and time, is, as you may have heard at some point, is you have, a, you have an olive press, like a, a stone uh, with olives on it, and you take a millstone that, ra- that goes around, you roll it around, uh, by connecting it to a, a longer uh, stick or log that might be connected to a mule, and the mule's walking around the millstone, uh, and, and the millstone is just rolling across these olives, and it's pressing the oil out. And it's the first oil that comes out is that pure olive oil, and then as you press more and more, you have the normal uh, olive oil, and then they, they even use the entire pit uh, there for various things uh, because it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very useful element in Israel. And to think about maybe just that picture of this is exactly what's happening to Christ. While he's there in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's being squeezed by the pressure of the thought of going to the cross. And so it's here in the garden, this place of prayer, where Christ is suffering and where we see him from, if you will, from a human standpoint, he's being pushed to the brink. And he could have gone there by himself, but he chose to take with him some of his disciples. And so the next blank says, the solace of trusted friends. The solace of trusted friends. If you notice in verse 33, he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And so these are his three most trusted friends, Peter, James, and John. These are the same three that he had taken with him when he went in to to raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. These are the same three that he took with him to the top of the Mount of Transfiguration. These three uh, saw Jesus at his best, let's say that was at the Mount of Transfiguration, and these three uh, saw Jesus at his worst here in the Garden of Gethsemane. So they saw him in the good times of life when everything's going great and all of his glory is on display, and they saw him in the most, in the most difficult trial of his life as he's praying and sweating drops of blood, asking God, if it's possible, take this from me, and these are the three men that are there with him. Sometimes we refer to them as the inner three, Peter, James, and John. You know, there's a human element to that, I believe, as we see Jesus suffer tonight, as he's fully God and fully man. There's a human element about wanting somebody close by. You know, I've seen a lot of people suffer as a pastor, and previously when I worked in the medical field, uh, you see people go through very difficult times of life. In fact, I've been there holding the hand of patients as they went off into eternity. And it's, there's something comforting about just having another human being there. And Jesus had these three men with him as he went through this very difficult time. Notice the verse says that he's very distressed and he's troubled. These words could also be translated that to, to be alarmed or to be in extreme anguish. And I, and I think that it's just important for us to realize that you can be distressed and troubled without being in sin, right? At no point or time in Christ's life, even here in the garden, did he ever sin. At no point was he ever not trusting God. At no point was he ever totally in despair. But being 
fully God and fully man, I think it's important for us to see the fact that he's stressed and he's troubled. And I don't think that he's stressed and he's troubled about the coming persecution. I don't think that he's stressed and he's troubled about the coming pain that he knows he'll go through on the cross. I don't even think that he's really troubled or, 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 or struggling with the fact that he's going to die. I think that he is struggling and that he's greatly uh, going through great anguish or great trouble because he knows for the first time in his life he will be separated from the Father. You see, from all eternity, uh, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have had perfect communion. For all eternity, from eternity past, there has been perfect fellowship between the Father and the Son. And I think that what was getting to Jesus is just that realization that tomorrow, when he goes to the cross, after he goes through the trials by night, and after he goes and he gets whipped with the, with the, you know, before he goes to the cross, that he's going to be separated from his Father. And I just think it's important for you and I to be reminded tonight that because Christ was separated from his Father when he died, you and I never have to be. Because Christ took that punishment of the wrath of God to be separated from his Father, you and I will never have to experience what it means to suffer alone. You see, Jesus had these three with him in the garden, but the next day at the cross, in a sense, when he goes uh, all the way to death, he will suffer alone. And there was John that was there at the foot of the cross and his mother Mary, but the idea is that he's, been in a, he's going to be in a broken relationship with his father. And this leads to maybe even our next point here. We see the sadness of soul. I think all of this is going on in Jesus' head when he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And so we definitely see that the sadness of, of, of the soul, like sobbing when you receive the bad news or the witness of the death of a loved one. It's like having a near-death experience, or you just got the bad news that one of your loved ones is going to die. That's sad news that brings you all the way down. It's like a pit in your stomach. And yet, in some strange way, it's good for us to see Jesus in this condition. It's good for us to see Jesus suffering and in a holy way, having anxiety about the coming separation between the Father and the Son. That's good for us to see in the person of Jesus Christ. And you know why that is? It's because of what Hebrews says. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The fact that Jesus suffered ought to help us in our suffering. I mean, have you ever thought about what it would have been like if Jesus would have just kind of waltzed through the garden that night without any heart-wrenching prayer? If he would have just kind of thrown the cross up on his back and walked joyfully to Golgotha? If he would have, you know, uh, taken the hammer and nailed his own, his own his body to the cross and act like it was no big deal with no pain or no anguish? You ever thought how that would affect you? You, you would just kind of be like, well, he's just some superhuman. He doesn't really understand pain. Does it really know what I'm going through? And yet that's not what happened to Christ. Fully God, fully man, he went through great anguish. And I think that what we're seeing here is that it is when someone is at their very worst, 
watching how they handle it, that is what true discipleship is all about. I believe that true discipleship is not only watching somebody at their very best when all is going well, but it's also watching somebody closely when they're at their very worst. It's in that moment how they respond and how they trust God and how they walk close to the Savior that it allows you, hopefully, uh, to be discipled in a way to realize that, that God's comfort is, is enough, that God's strength will get you through. And so this is important for us, I believe, to see this even in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, let me move on to our second heading, if I can, tonight. Number two, let's look at the supplication of Jesus' heart. The supplication of Jesus' heart. And the next blank says this, a heart of desperation. A heart of of desperation. There in verse 35, and going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. This is Jesus laying prostrate before God on the ground, right? Matthew says he fell on his face and he's praying to God, if it's possible, let this hour pass. I just appreciate again the realness of the gospel writers recording for us what's going on here. I mean, have you ever been in a place where you were squeezed so tight you were desperate for God? You ever been in a place, whether it would be a a physical trial or some difficulty in your family, there's some anguish that's come upon you that you're so desperate that you fall on your face before God and you beg Him in His mercy to help you get through that situation. Jesus has been there. Jesus, in this very moment, again, he's not waltzing through the garden here. He's on his face before God, begging God to, in a sense, consider, as he says in verse 35, if it were possible that the hour would pass from him. And yet he moves through that place of desperation in verse 36, the first part. Your next blank says, we see here a heart of devotion, a heart of devotion, because in his desperation, Chapter uh, 14, verse 36, the first part says, And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. And so here in the moment of his desperation, he's also adoring God the Father. And he cries out to him, Daddy. As we know, that Hebrew word Abba is a close, intimate word that a child would say to their father, Abba, Father, All things are possible with you. Doesn't it remind you a little bit about how maybe your kids, when they're they're young, they look up at you as a mom or dad, and they just think you can do anything, right? I mean, you don't want to really tell them yet. You want to see how long you can just kind of keep that going before you have to tell them, hey, daddy can't do that, you know? I'm I'm not strong enough to do that. I can't lift the house over my head, right? But for a little while, you just kind of want them to think, yes, right, daddy can do anything. Well, look, Abba, Father, as Jesus is calling out to God, he's really calling out to a father who can do anything. He knows that God is fully capable to do whatever he would want to do, right? Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 17, the prophet Jeremiah writes, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. And so we see Jesus, even in the moment of his desperation, adoring the Father, praising the Father, calling out and ascribing attributes of strength and power to the Father. And then we see him moving next to a heart of petition, your next blank, a heart of petition there in verse 36 where he says, this is now his request, right? Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. 
this, this is said in a tense in the original language that really demonstrates it's more of a question or a plea than a command. So it's not like Jesus here is demanding God to take this away. It's more of a, of a prayer, a potential that he's leaning on God. He's leaning into the wisdom of God and the sovereign power of God. And he knew that it was in the scope of God's power and omniscience to provide an alternate plan of salvation if God wanted to. But he didn't want to. And I believe Christ knew that as well. I think all along it wasn't like he really thought God may change the plan. But we're just seeing him again in his divinity and in his humanity wrestling, as each one of us do, uh, in, our, in our own humanness as we're trusting God and we're, and, and we're crying out to God. And yet we, I think, can learn a lot from Christ to say, yet, yet not my will, Lord, but thine be done. Lord, save me from this trial. I don't want to go through this anymore. And yet, God, it's not about my will. It's about your will. May your will be done. And so Jesus is going to be ready to receive the the cup of of God's wrath. He knows that it's coming. And yet we see a window into his humanity here. And then we see, maybe last here, a heart of resolution. That next blank, a heart of resolution there at the end of verse 36 when he says, again, yet not what I will, but what you will. So the request was, remove this cup from me. The resolution is, yet not what I will, but what you will. This reveals Jesus' total resolution and resignation to do the will of God. He came into the world to do the will of his Father, and he will not stop here. Right, it's John chapter 6, verses 38 through 40 that Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on that last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. Jesus knows full well the will of the Father, and he will not fail. He will accomplish it. He's here to do the Father's will. And it's the Father's will that Jesus would die on the cross so that he could raise up us, those who would be in Christ, on that last day. In fact, we read in Isaiah 53.10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was God's will that Christ go to the cross. And so uh, here, I think that there's a really an example even in Jesus's prayer here in the garden that would be an excellent model for us to follow in our prayers. Just look at the four subpoints again. Be desperate for God. Adore God for who he is. Ask him, petition him, right? for whatever is on your heart, but resolve in your mind to do what his word says. I think there's a, a great example there of how we could pray at times when we're going through a difficult time. Be desperate, adore God, ask him for whatever you want, and then whatever you want um, in him, right? Trusting that it's in the Lord, but resolve in your mind to do whatever it is that would be the will of the Lord. Well, the third heading that I want us to look at tonight is we, again, are learning to identify with Christ's struggle so that we can rest in his strength. Number three, the sleepiness of Jesus's disciples. The next blank there, that first subpoint under the third heading, says this, are you falling back to your old ways? Are you falling back to your old ways? Look at verse 37, and he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour. I mean, here Jesus is having the most gut-wrenching night of his life. 
And he brought his three friends there, you think, to probably help pray for him, pray with him, stand on guard, just be alert, be attentive. And so uh, you remember it was, it was Peter who had just been so bold as to say, I will never deny you. Uh, and though all may fall, I will not. And yet here he is kind of losing his edge a little bit. Peter's letting the elements get to him. It's been a long day. I'm sure it's like we said, it might have been as late as midnight in the garden. And so Peter falls asleep along with James and John. And some of the commentators say that, that maybe why Jesus called Peter here Simon uh, is because some would say the word Simon could refer to a smaller pebble, whereas the word Peter would be a little bit of a bigger rock. I think it has to do more with Jesus calling him by his old name, which represents his old ways instead of his new name that was to represent the new strength and the new energy that Peter was to be, that rock for Christ. And so I, I think it's like when Jesus saw Simon not really walking in the light and in the power of the Spirit, he's like, Simon, what are you doing? You need to be Peter. Stop being Simon. Uh, I need you to be Peter right now. And yet he was falling back into his old ways, not, not being fully alert and attentive through this trial that Christ is going through on this night. And I think maybe we should ask ourselves a similar question. When we go through a trial, are you moving forward, learning to rejoice in the midst of your trials and trust God in the midst of your trials? Or when you go through your trials, do you revert back into your old ways, back into despair, back into depression, back to, uh, you know, alcohol or just checking out or just being a lazy bum? You know, we, we all have different ways that we can uh, deal with things when they come down our path. Are we reverting to kind of our old ways of handling that? Or are we trusting and walking close to Christ? Let me ask you another question. Your next blank there in the outline. Are you stronger? Are you stronger in your flesh or in your spirit? Verse 38, Jesus says, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, a couple of things with this verse. First of all, we see here clearly what Peter's doing seems to be sinful. You know, we might kind of give him a little bit of a break. Come on, it's midnight. He's sleepy. We all have fallen asleep in prayer, right? So we, we want to give him a little bit of a break, but Jesus is using this as really a teaching point. He's not saying, hey, Peter, it's okay. I know it's late. I know you're tired. It's okay, buddy. Hang in there. He's like, no, no, no. This is about fighting the fight of faith. This is about good versus evil. This, this is about watch out for temptation. You must pray that you do not enter into temptation because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And as a, you know, as a good Christian and a good theologian, if we were asked the question, are you stronger in the flesh or in your spirit, you would, you would have to say, in my spirit, right? You'd say, well, greater is he that is in me than he's in the world. And uh, of course, I, I have Christ, so I have the power to overcome sin and to overcome temptation. And then, uh, you know, that's how we, we want to answer the question. Well, of course, uh, I'm stronger in my spirit than I'm in my flesh. And yet, we would also have to say that every time that we sin, in a sense, we kind of fall back into our old way for that moment, we kind of fall back in the remnant of our old nature, back into that, 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 that walking in the flesh versus walking in the spirit. And so here Christ is challenging us. He's challenging Peter. Look, man, I, I need you walking in the spirit. You got to watch out, right? You got to be careful. I, I appreciate years ago I heard about, there was a story about an old uh, Native American Indian who tried to describe this battle that he had going on in his conscience. And he tried, this Indian described it as, it's like two dogs inside of me, always at war with each other. And so the white man asked the Indian, well, which dog is winning? 
And the Indian replied, it's which dog I feed the most. So if I feed the, you know, the bad dog most, it starts winning. If I feed the, the, white, the, the, the good dog most, it starts winning. And it's just, that's just true, right? There's this battle going on within us. And the principle of verse 38, again, is that we're called to watch and to pray. We're called to be alert, to be on guard, like a soldier on a night watch. And we're to, we're to be entering into the spiritual uh, warfare that God calls us to. We've looked at Ephesians chapter 6 here. We've talked about how all the pieces of the armor are defensive, except for the sword of the Spirit, that's the Word of God. And then that text also says, and prayer. There's the idea of being in, in prayer. First Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9 say, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And so we know that God's called us to be strong in the Spirit because it's willing, if you're in Christ, but be aware that our flesh is weak. Maybe a third question we could ask here uh, in this section is this. Are you, your next blank, are you at a loss for words? Are you at a loss for words? Notice in verse 39 and 40, and again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. So Jesus continues to, to pray kind of the same thing he's been praying. Verse 40, and again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. You know, it's kind of like when Jesus came back and said, man, are you guys sleeping again? They didn't even know what to say. You know, we're guilty as charged. You know, that would, that would happen to me as a kid all the time, right? I'd be playing with my brother. We're doing something we know we're not supposed to do. And maybe we break something in the house or we're being way too loud. And my dad comes down like, what were you thinking? And I'm like, I got nothing to say, right? And it's almost like this is Peter's reaction. Jesus is coming back to him again and found them sleeping. And they, they didn't even know how to answer him. They just, they're just kind of out of it a little bit. Where, where's Peter's zeal now? You know, he's this zealous warrior for Christ, which we so often identify with because then he sticks his foot in the, his mouth a lot. And then he denied Christ, and we identify with that. And I'm, I'm kind of starting to identify with him in the garden. Like, I fall asleep a lot when I'm praying. And so uh, sometimes we might just be at a loss for words about, about what's going on because we're really guilty for not really walking uh, close to Christ in those moments. And then maybe the, the last question here is, are you still sleeping? Are you still sleeping? Verse 41, again, it says, uh, he came back the third time. He came back the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Now, how about you spiritually tonight? Are you still uh, sleeping and taking your rest physically, or is your rest in the Lord? You know, and we could ask the question of, are you watching and praying? Are you spending that devotional time with Christ every day? You know, this isn't me up here tonight just saying, hey, you know, if you're not having a quiet time, and you're not spending time reading the scriptures every day, and spending time in prayer, then shame on you. At the same time, that is what we're saying, right? If you're not living a life of devotion to Christ, not because you have to check off the list. I read through my Bible today, check. I spent a little time in prayer today, check. That's not the, 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 the mindset. The mindset is, I'm desperate for God. I got to have him today in order to live out my marriage in a God-honoring way. I, I got to have God today in his truth to know how to parent my children. I, I got to have God today because if I'm at work without him, I'm going to get crushed I've got to have God today because in the idleness of my mind, I could wonder and think sinful, selfish thoughts if I don't have Christ 
in the forefront of my mind. And so this is more of that idea of watch and pray so that we don't fall into temptation, so that we're ready to be there with our Lord, that we're there not sleeping physically or even spiritually in some type of stupor, but that we're ready for the fight, right? And this leads us to our final point tonight, number four, the strength of Jesus's character, the strength of his character. Notice the next blank there under the fourth heading says, the time will come. The time will come. There in verse 41, uh, it says, it is enough. The hour has come. I think this is kind of a reference to the fullness of time has come because Jesus throughout his ministry talks about the hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. And he's talking about this hour, this hour of the cross. And he's saying, hey, now it's here. That hour that we've been waiting on, it's enough, guys. It's okay. The hour has come. Here it is. It's about to happen. And let me say something uh, to all of us tonight. Your, our hour is coming. There, there is an hour for you when you will be at the crossroad of making a decision in your life that will really determine who you are. There, there's an hour that's coming that will really define who you are. And I'm saying to you tonight, you better be ready. There's a moment in time. I mean, we just read a little bit this last couple of weeks about the governor in Alabama. I don't know if you track with that story, but apparently a godly man who taught Sunday school, member of a Baptist church. He was a doctor. He was reelected for a second term as the governor of Alabama. And then just this week, what happened? Right? All this stuff has been, uh, all these uh, allegations have been made against him for basically being unfaithful to his wife. And they're saying the guy, you know, lived a, a double life here over the last few years. And it's just like, how sad is that? It doesn't matter. He, he had been married to his wife for 50 years. This is their 50th year. And as I read that in the news, and I think I heard Moeller talking about it a little bit on the briefing, I just, I just like, was like, Lord, I guess the battle just never goes away. I mean, you could be walking with the Lord for your whole, you could have 50 years of marriage and then throw it down the drain in just one bad decision that leads to another bad decision that usually, uh, you know, begins to just consume your life. And it's just a reminder to me that that hour could be coming, that hour of testing, that hour of trial to test your character, it's coming. Are you ready for it? Are you ready tonight? Are you thinking, oh, that would never happen to me. I'm a Christian. Well, remember Peter, right? I'll never leave you, Lord. I'll never deny you. Everybody else will follow. I'm right there for you, Lord. And yet here he is falling asleep in the garden, and here in the very, a little bit later that night, he's going to deny him three times. He's not even there at the foot of the cross. John was, but Peter, we don't think he was there that night. And so it's, it's just amazing to see how quick things can come. But the time is coming. And, and the next blank says it this way, bad things will come. I mean, it's going to happen. It's not like the story in the garden that night was in God you know, delivered Jesus from their hands. I mean, one, one of the gospel accounts talks about when Jesus spoke out, they all fell back, but then they do come back and they take him and they abduct him, right? And that was part of God's plan. But I'm saying here in, 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 in the middle of verse 41, it says again, it is enough, the hour has come, the Son of Man, the very end of verse 41, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. It happened. Jesus was taken, an innocent, sinless, Savior of the world was taken into custody and was beaten and tried throughout the night and then crucified the next day. Maybe you remember if you were here last Sunday, we talked about the fact that God may deliver you from the fire, that God may choose to deliver you through the fire, or that God may choose to deliver you to the fire. 
And in the context of last Sunday's message, this is God delivering Jesus to the fire. He's not going to keep him from the cross. He's going to go through the cross and to the ultimate human end of death, though he was made alive in the spirit. But he does go to the fire. And it may happen to you that way. Your sickness may end in death. We have to just be aware of that. Like anything could happen to us at any moment. At the same time, we're trusting God, right? Because in this moment we see, and I love this, how this little unit of scripture ends in verse 42. Your last blank there says, strength will come. Strength will come. Notice Jesus kind of gets through the, 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 uh, the, the, you know, the kind of the back and forth in his own spirit and his own heart, you know, as he's fully God, fully man. He kind of gets through that. He said, hey, the hour's come. The son of man's going to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. Verse 42, rise. Let us be going. My betrayer is hand. You don't, you don't get the sense that Jesus is cowering, that he's running away, that he's trying to escape. You kind of get the sense of like, all right, we prayed, we poured out our heart, we're trusting God, I'm ready, I, I, I'm here for this moment. Let's rise and let's lean into this particular situation. Jesus was, was ready, he's not shying away, he's, 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 he's there to do what God has called him to do. It's Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, that God would call us to have that same uh, temperament, right? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And yet the problem for you and I is that we want all the glory without the suffering, right? We want to get the crown, but we're not willing to carry the cross, And I just wanted us to see tonight that some part of the Christian life is all about rejoicing and all about magnifying, uh, you know, God as he works in us. But part of the Christian life is you too may be a man or a woman of sorrows. You too uh, will go through difficult times and yet we can look at Christ, identify with him so that we can rest in him and that we could know that he is um, going to ultimately deliver us. And so let me just end tonight just with this quote from J.C. Ryle, who's talking about this very thing. J.C. Ryle writes this, quote, Are we true Christians, and would we keep our souls awake? Then let us never forget to watch and pray. We must, we must watch like soldiers. We are upon enemy ground. We must always be on our guard. We must fight a daily fight and war a daily warfare. The Christian's rest is yet to come. We must pray without ceasing, regularly, habitually, carefully, and at stated times. We must pray as well as watch, and watch as well as pray. Watching without praying is self-confidence and self-conceit. Praying without watching is enthusiasm and fanaticism. The man who knows his own weaknesses and knowing it both watches and prays is the man that will be held up and not allowed to fall. Something to remember tonight as we look at Christ, the man of sorrows. He didn't fall. He was honest about his struggle. He trusted fully in the will of his Father, and God is going to bring him through the cross on that night so many years ago so that you and I tonight could learn from his example and follow in his steps. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to just spend a little time tonight reviewing um, the account of of, uh, the abduction of Christ from the Garden of Gethsemane. We think about Jesus 
being the man of sorrows, as being the man who was crushed by the will of God, as being the, the God-man who was, who was honest about the struggle and yet showing us that unbelievable, consistent faith that only Christ could ultimately have, never sinning, always trusting. And I, and I pray, God, that tonight there would be someone here, I know, that's going through a difficult trial. God, we're, we're human, and we're going through life, and it's not always easy. There would be uh, people in this room tonight that have had great trials that they've been facing even in the last days and weeks and over the course of this last year. Tonight, God, I pray that as we look at the example of Christ, that we would remember to just pour out our soul to the Lord, that we would remember to adore you and call out to you, Abba, Father, knowing that you're fully capable to do whatever you will, that we would feel um, the freedom to make our request to you. And yet at the same time, we would have that resolve to say, Lord, not my will, but thine be done. We trust you. We love you. We worship you. And we thank you that it was through the cross that you provided salvation for sinners like me. And I pray that tonight, if there would be one here that would be just contemplating and thinking what this weekend is all about, that you would show them your love for them, that you would call them out of darkness into light, that we would see the, the, the divinity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, who became our substitute and bore our sin and our shame so that we could be set free through repentance and faith and Christ's sacrifice and in Christ's death for us. God, thank you for Sunday that's coming as we focus on the resurrection. I pray it be a glorious day for us to celebrate in our risen Savior. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.